Well, as you're able, please stand with me as we come now to hear God's Word. The sermon text will come from three parts of Scripture. Exodus chapter 33, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and Revelation chapter 22. More passages than we would normally use on a Sunday morning sermon. But if you wish to follow along, it's in Exodus 33, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Revelation chapter 22. Hear now these portions of God's Word. In Exodus 33, Moses speaks and says to the Lord, Please show me your glory. Then the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And Yahweh said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock, So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 beginning at verse 3, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then in Revelation chapter 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Congregation, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it was disheartening earlier this week, or this past week, to find that my copy of the Encyclopedia of the Reformed Faith jumped directly from Bay Psalm book to Beecher Henry Ward. I thought it seems like there were a few other things that ought to appear between these two entries. How many different doctrines or reformed ideas or reformed uh, characters might we have included in that kind of an index? Among other things, we might have expected an entry entitled The Beatific Vision. It was disappointing to me, but it was not actually surprising. I'd pulled that particular volume off my shelf for, the, for a reason, because I kind of expected that beatific vision would not be listed. Because before consulting that Reformed Encyclopedia, I had already consulted nine different Reformed systematic theologies, none of which included any heading for the beatific vision, and most of which did not have any discussion of it. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, Pastor Joel, that's because the beatific vision is not a Reformed doctrine. But if you're thinking that, then you are incorrect. It is discussed at length by many Reformed theologians and preachers. It was one of the favorite topics of many of the Puritans. 
John Owen, for example, wrote at great length and considered it to be an incredibly important doctrine, not just for the future life, but for our present daily meditation. Francis Turretin, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon all talk at length about the beatific vision and use that very name for it. But more important than its reformed credentials is the fact that this doctrine is taught plainly in the Bible. It's not thoroughly explained, which gives rise to so much of the theological discussion about it, but it is plainly taught in the Word of God. The doctrine of the beatific vision refers to the apprehension of God that will be experienced by the saints beyond this life. And it's been explained in various ways over the centuries. Aquinas taught that it, taught, that, that, that it involved an unmediated, innate knowledge of God's essence. John Owen taught that it involved perceiving God and His glory in the glory of Christ's incarnation. That the risen, still incarnate, and glorified Lord, His face will be the face that we see, and in so seeing, we will see the glory of God. The word beatific refers to complete happiness or perfect blessedness. So whatever we think the beatific vision involves, it, it is one of glorious, consummated knowledge of the triune God. And you might be wondering, well, what does that have to do with this recent short series of studies that we've scheduled here near the end of the year? We've been talking about the already not yet aspects of the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, which is just a description of the various experiences of grace that believers have on the path of salvation, along the way of salvation, that God calls His people, that He causes them to be born again, that He gives them faith and justifies them, that He sanctifies them, that He adopts them, and that one day He will glorify them. And we've been examining the ways in which Scripture indicates this inaugurated but not yet consummated aspect of the kingdom of God that intrudes into and affects our experience of grace as well. That there are aspects of our regeneration and our justification and our sanctification that also partake of this same kind of already but not yet fully tension that we see in the New Testament. And in this lesson, we're discussing glorification. And glorification is usually the last of the blessings that we place in that chain that we call the ordo salutis. Regeneration leads to justification and sanctification, which culminates finally in the believer's glorification. But this glory we will see today is already the believer's possession and privilege. In other words, we have already been glorified, and we are being right now glorified, and one day we will be glorified in direct relationship to our apprehension, to our perception of the glorious one, our Lord Jesus Christ. That means that the goal of glorification in our salvation is the beatific vision. And that means that the beatific vision, in an important sense, begins not in heaven and not in the final new heavens and earth, but it begins right now in our experience of union with Jesus his, himself. Now let's first of all deal with the glorification elephant in the room. We put glorification at the end of the Ordo Salutis. We relate it to the day of resurrection, the final judgment, the eternal state but when Paul puts something like the Ordo Salutis into his epistles, he doesn't place glorification 
in that order in the same way that we might have expected. He places it in parallel with effectual calling and justification. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It's in Romans chapter 8 and verse 30 where Paul writes, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. He doesn't say he will glorify them one day, some point in the future. In our English translations, it's in the past tense. We are called, justified, glorified already. It's not somewhere over the rainbow. It's not beyond the resurrection horizon. It's, it's back there when we were called into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Now, technically, Greek doesn't have a past tense in the same way that we do in English. This is actually an aorist active indicative, and hopefully all of you feel smarter for knowing that now. But you can notice in your English Bibles that it's in the same tense as predestined and called and justified, and it's the same in the original. The point is that these things are being looked at as accomplished blessings. This is an accomplished act of grace. It's not trying to give any kind of temporal indication per se, but it's just an accomplished fact. God predestines and God glorifies, and, he, and, and those two groups are coextensive. Everyone whom God predestined is called. They are not just called generally or potentially, they are called effectually. God says to them, come, and they come to Him. And everyone whom He calls is justified. Their sins are forgiven, they are counted as righteous for the sake of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, everyone who is justified is glorified. They are glorified right now. You are glorified in your union with Jesus Christ. You partake of glory, and by partake, I mean you drink and bathe in it. And you do that by believing and loving and worshiping the glorious one, Jesus Christ, to whom you are connected. You are a branch drawing sap from the vine. You are a stone placed into the temple. You are a member of the body. You are nourished and led by the head. You are partaking of His glory right now. Now, saying that does not rule out this future aspect of our glorification that so many theologians talk about. Obviously, we are not yet in the presence of Christ. We do not see Him face to face in a bodily way. We are still mortal and fallible, and our faith is accompanied by great weakness. We are beset by many trials which dim our joy and peace in the Lord and yet, all of those blessings that we hope to see consummated one day have already begun in our experience of grace today. We do see Christ, but we see Him by faith. We do have peace with God and joy in the Holy Spirit, even if that is sometimes interrupted by our sinful nature and experiences in the present world. We do apprehend God. And not just in the mere sense of intellectual knowledge. We apprehend God in the sense of a personal, experiential relationship. And if that sounds too touchy-feely for, for you, let me, let me point you to the Westminster Larger Catechism, which does a good job of breaking this down. In question 82, the Catechism says, The communion in glory which the members of the invisible church have with Christ is, one, in this life, two, immediately after death, and three, at last perfected at the resurrection and day of judgment. That's exactly right. And the following questions in the larger catechism unpack those aspects of this reality of glory. That there's, there's right now in this life, 
the apprehension of the glory of God seen by faith in the face of Jesus Christ as he is presented to us in the gospel and we in union with him share in that glory and it only gets better from there. The larger catechism says that there is a present, future, and final aspect to our fellowship with Christ in glory. In other words, our glorification. That glory is enjoyed right now. It will be enjoyed more fully after death and prior to the resurrection, and it will be fully consummated in the eternal state. We, we sometimes think about uh, saints who have died in Christ, they've fallen asleep in Jesus, and they have gone on to glory. Well, that, that, that's not wrong for us to say that, but they are not fully glorified in the way that we all expect to be at the resurrection on the last day. And yet they're more glorified than you and I are right now. They do see Jesus. They are in the presence of God. They are beyond the reach of temptation and sin. They are more glorified than we are presently, but have not yet been fully glorified in the way that we all will be one day together. Now, perhaps some Reformed theologians have been reluctant to use the term beatific because of the baggage that they fear comes with it. Uh, if you have any kind of acquaintance with the Roman Catholic tradition, then you will know some of that baggage yourself. To be beatified in Roman Catholicism is when the church declares that a Christian who has died is definitely in heaven. They are no longer in purgatory and therefore are now able to intercede for Christians who pray for him to do so. So St. Saint, Saint Michael or Holy Mary, you know, Holy Mary, Mother of God, you, you can now intercede for us. You can, you can pray to Jesus for us because you are in heaven. We know that you are not in purgatory. You are not separated from the glory, but you are now in the presence of the glory. And, and, and that, that is the significance of being beatified in Roman Catholicism. It is, in fact, the second and penultimate step toward full canonization and sainthood. But the word beatify simply means to bless. And the beatific vision is the blessed vision of God that in turn brings us into a state of blessedness. It's a blessed vision that brings blessing to us. And as we said, it begins right now. We perceive Christ by faith. We apprehend God by faith. The Holy Spirit brings to us the blessings and benefits of grace. The very blessing that Moses prayed for in the first passage we read in the book of Exodus, show me your glory, is given right now to believers in Jesus. Do you remember the conversation Jesus has with his disciples in the upper room the night of his betrayal? When in John chapter 14, Jesus says to them, if you had known me, you would have known my father also, and from now on, you know him and have seen him. So what Moses is praying for on the mountain, Jesus says, you have it. You have it. Lord, show me your glory. And Yahweh says, you can't see my glory. It would incinerate you. you. You can't see me. You can't see my face. I'll show you my back. I'll hide you in the rock. But in the rock, what is Moses going to see? He's going to see the glory of God. He's going to see the glory of God. Well, who is the rock? And where are the disciples in that upper room? They are hid in Christ. They are hidden in Christ with God. And what does Jesus say? You've seen it. If you've seen me, you've seen him. He who has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father. We see God right now by faith in Christ. And one day we will see him face to face 
in the presence, in the bodily presence of the glorified Christ, before whom we will also be transformed and share in his perfected glory. And this is really written throughout your, your scriptures. This is throughout the Bible, whether you've noticed it or not. First John chapter 3 and verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. As He is? No man can see me and live. But here is the blessing that Christ brings to us in His incarnation. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You remember Moses, when he was up on the holy mountain in the presence of God, though he could not see God face to face, the effect of that glory that he was Uh, surrounded by, right, overwhelmed by, was so great that when he would come down from the mountain, his face would be shining. His face would be shining. And he would speak to the people with that shining face and then cover his face with a veil, Paul says, so that they would not see the glory that was passing, the glory that was fading. But now, the veil has been removed. And we are staring face to face at the glory of God and being transformed to share in that same glory. That's what the Bible says. In fact, the theme of God's glory runs throughout Scripture. It could easily be its own series of studies. Yahweh's glory speaks to His presence, to His beauty, to His various attributes in the Bible. The glory of the Lord was with the Israelites in the wilderness, in the pillar of cloud by day and in the pillar of fire by night. It filled the tabernacle and the first temple when they were consecrated, and it is embodied and personal in the God-man. Yahweh, in the flesh... Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord Jesus Christ. He tabernacles among us. That's what John says in first John, or excuse me, in the Gospel of John, chapter one and verse fourteen. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent there with us, and we beheld his glory. What is his glory? The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So when when the Israelites build the tabernacle in the at Mount Sinai and they consecrate it by prayer and sacrifice, what happens? The glory of Yahweh fills the temple, and and the brightness is so great that Moses and the priests cannot go inside. And what does John say happens in the incarnation? God does it again. He pitches his tent, and his glory fills it, and when we see Jesus by faith, we see the glory of God. The desire to see God in his glory also runs throughout Scripture. Yahweh walks with man in the garden in the cool of the day in Genesis. But sin has separated creation from the Creator. Not only Moses, but the psalmist long for God's glorious presence, which will bring them peace and joy and blessedness. David says in Psalm 16 and verse 11, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You will not have that fullness of peace, that fullness of blessing, until you're in the presence of God. But insofar as you are with God by faith in Christ right now, you have begun to partake of those blessings. Similarly in Psalm 17, verse 15, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. That's what the believer longs for. That's what the Holy Spirit is teaching us to pray. To say, Lord, I want to be like you. You've called me to be holy as you are holy. I want that. 
I want to be with you. I want to see your face. I'm still like Moses praying on the mountain, show me your glory. And in Jesus, I see more of it than Moses in his lifetime got to see. And that's a pretty remarkable thing because when you think about Moses, God says, every other prophet I talk to, it's in dreams and visions. With Moses, I talk to him like a friend. I speak to him face to face. And yet the glory revealed in the person of Jesus Christ is said to be greater than even that experience Moses had. The beatific vision will beatify those who behold it. This is not the vision of God's holy wrath and terror which the damned will see on the last day. It is the transforming love and grace of God who loved His children before the foundation of the world. And it will then bring us into the full joy and peace for which the church has always longed, for which we have always prayed. Charles Hodge actually has an excellent section on this in his Systematic Theology in the third volume. I'll just quote a very short portion of a much larger paragraph. He says this, quote, As to the blessedness of this heavenly state, we know that it is inconceivable. We know, however, that this incomprehensible blessedness of heaven shall arise from the vision of God. This vision is beatific. It beatifies. It transforms the soul into the divine image, transfusing into it the divine life so that it is filled with the fullness of God." So just in, case, like, just in case you lost track of where we're at and you're thinking, oh, now, Pastor Joel has started quoting you know, Roman Catholic mystics. You know, he's quoting the Desert Fathers, those guys that would starve themselves for years in the desert, and, and now they're, they're hallucinating. That was Charles Hodge, American Presbyterian, very, very safe, right? And what's he say? He say, you're going to behold God in his glory, and it's going to glorify you. The divine life is going to fill you. You're not going to be divine, but you're going to be a glorified creature made in the image of God. The way that that divine glory shone within the human body of the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? Guess what? The way that Moses' face shone reflecting the glory of God, guess what? You're going to be there. You're going to be overwhelmed by it. Why do we have to be glorified by resurrection before we can behold the radiance of that glory fully? Well, think about the Mount of Transfiguration for a second. What happened when Peter, James, and John saw the glory of God revealed in part in the bodily presence of the Lord Jesus Christ? Think about what happened to John, the beloved disciple, when he was in exile on Patmos in Revelation chapter 1, and he hears a voice behind him, and he turns around, and here is the Lord. Now, he hasn't seen Jesus in several decades at this point, but they were really close. right? John was, John was the beloved disciple who laid back upon Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. They're very close. What, is, what does John do when he sees his friend? He faints like a dead man. He's so overwhelmed, it drops him to the ground. Even the holiest of men cannot stand before Christ's glory unless and until they partake of the divine nature and glory. Now there have been different ways of understanding and expressing all that is involved in this beatific vision throughout the centuries. This is a sermon, it's not a lecture. I'm not going to go through, kind of give you a taxonomy of all the various views. But I do want to suggest three ways in which we will see God in this consummated glorification at the last day. The first is I want you to think about seeing God with resurrected eyes. 
Now, I'm actually making a, a play in, uh, on, in wording here because very often in discussions of the beatific vision, one of the first things that theologians will say is, you're not going to see God with resurrected eyes. That's, that's not the point. And, and, and they're right that that's not the point. But you need to understand your eyes will be resurrected and will be part of that experience of glory. Properly speaking, the beatific vision is not about the resurrection of our eyeballs. It is a spiritual vision. And it begins by faith right now, and it will be in presence then. But our eyes will be resurrected along with our bodies. And our ability to see and perceive and understand what is there in the eternal state in the glorified new heavens and earth will also be transformed. This is very important because a lot of Christians, they seem to have this idea that our destiny is to to be Casper the Friendly Ghost, like we've talked about before. Like, I, I just can't wait until I'm disembodied like a Gnostic. And then, I, you know, my, my invisible spirit is swallowed up in the ether of the divine presence. No, that's not a biblical idea. That's a pagan idea. Scripture says our hope is resurrection. It's not disembodiment. It's more fully embodied in an imperishable body that the Lord will give us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 35, someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come, foolish one? What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Just pause there for a second. Do you realize he's talking about resurrecting the entire cosmos and everything in it? This is not consistent with a model, an an eschatological model of annihilation. Our future hope is for God to just absolutely wipe out every molecule and atom in this present universe. That's not not what the Bible says. He's saying there's glory associated with all of these different types of bodies that God has made. The diversity is marvelous, and he's going to resurrect it and transform it all. Continuing on, the body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now don't make the mistake here of thinking that spiritual means immaterial. That's the mistake that's often made. Spiritual means not physical. No, no, not in this context. Glorification is talking about a transformation of our bodies so that our physical frame... Our physical body is now brought into eschatological perfection like Jesus' body after the resurrection. That's what John said in 1 John chapter 3 that we read a few minutes ago. We shall be like him. Well, what is Jesus' body like? Well, he eats, he drinks, 
He walks, he talks, he gets hugs from his disciples, he walks through locked doors, and he flies. And the Bible says your body will be like his. So you could do with that what you will. He's not less physical. If anything, he's more substantial. He's the same and yet not the same. He's been transformed, and we will be also. And so while there is a sense in which glorification has begun right now, and there is a sense in which saints who have fallen asleep and are now with Jesus are more glorified than we are, there's also this sense in which none of the saints, but only Christ, have been truly, fully glorified. And we all will be glorified together at the same time in the resurrection on the last day. You see, Moses has more glory right now than you do. But you and Moses are going to be glorified at the same time, fully, consummately, together in the presence of Jesus. The beatific vision is the vision of God we will have after the return of Christ, after the resurrection of the dead, after the judgment of the world, and in the eternal state. It will be when Jesus transforms our lowly body, as Paul says, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. And so the saints in heaven are more glorious but not fully glorified. And we who have been justified are glorified but not in the way that we one day will be. We will see God, secondly, in the glorified, resurrected God-man. I don't believe, and I've said this before, that we will ever see God the Father with our eyes in the way that some people expect to, in the way that false prophets like Joseph Smith claimed that he did. The Bible says that no man can see God, and there are two reasons for that. The first is because men are sinful and God is holy, and the vision of God's holiness would destroy a polluted sinner, even the holiest of sinners, as we see in Moses' encounter on Mount Sinai. That problem will be dealt with in the final vision of God's glory. In the beatific vision, sin will be no more. We will be perfected in holiness, And so you might expect, well, then at that point we can see the Father, can we not? Well, no, not in the physical way that you're thinking about, because there's a second reason no one can see God, and that is because God is spirit, and He is, in fact, immaterial. In other words, there is nothing to be seen with our physical eyes. That does not mean that God is imaginary. It means that He does not have a body. He does not have material existence that can be perceived with physical senses. Nevertheless, the Bible says clearly that we will see God's face. And how can we see God's face if He doesn't have a face to see? But of course, God does have a face to see. Emmanuel's face. That's exactly what Jesus says in the upper room. This is where John Owen's development of the doctrine of the beatific vision is so helpful. He says, of course you're going to see God. You will see God personally. You will see Him face to face with resurrected eyes because you will see Jesus. And when you see Jesus, who do you see? Jesus says you see the Father. It's not because Jesus is the Father, but because the Father, Son, and Spirit are one God. Same in substance, equal in power and glory. And to see Jesus is to see God Himself. He who has seen me has seen the Father. The disciples who walked with Jesus walked with God. When Mary embraced Jesus at the tomb, she embraced God. When we stand before the throne and are judged, we will see the face of God. And it will be a face full of love and joy and acceptance because it reflects His glory. 
And Charles Spurgeon preached just a powerful lesson on this in 1856, of which I will only read you one paragraph, but the whole thing is worth reading. He said this, quote, This is not the land of sight. It is too dark a country to see him, and our eyes are not good enough. We walk here by faith and not by sight. It is pleasant to believe his grace, but we had rather see it. Well, we shall see him. But perhaps you think when it says we shall see him that it means we shall know more about him. We shall think more of him. We shall get better views of him by faith. Oh no, it does not at all. It means what it says, positive sight. Just as plainly as I can see my brother there, just as plainly as I can see any one of you, shall I see Christ with these very eyes too. With these very eyes that look on you, shall I look on the Savior? It is not a fancy that we shall see Him. Do not begin cutting these words to pieces. You see that gas lamp? You will see the Savior in the same fashion. Naturally, positively, really, actually. You will not see Him dreamily. You will not see Him in the poetical sense of the word. See, you will not see Him in the metaphorical meaning of the word, but positively you shall see Him as He is. See Him. Mark that. Not think about Him and dream about Him, but we shall positively see Him as He is. End quote. It's like, it's like Spurgeon is hammering some of the same ideas that we talk about here very often to say don't turn your faith just into an exercise in rationalism. Right? Doctrine is so important in the Reformed tradition, and praise God that it is. But sometimes it's, it's almost as if we reduce our relationship with God to just thinking God's thoughts after Him. And as important as that is, Spurgeon wants you to know you are going to see him face to face. You're going to see Jesus. The third way in which we're going to see God, at least that we'll mention this morning, is that we will see him with the joy of an elevated and perfected soul. We've said that the beatific vision is not just a matter of physical sight. And we need to lean into this point before we finish. Yes, we will see Christ. And in seeing Christ, we will see God in His glory and greatness. But it's more than just seeing Him with our eyes. In fact, just seeing Jesus with our eyes would not be by itself the beatific vision. Because it won't only be believers who see Jesus on the last day. It will also be the damned. And they will see Him and cry out in terror. Merely to see Jesus' body is not beatific. But the resurrection is not only going to transform our bodies, it's going to transform us, our being, our souls. Paul says that Christ in you is the hope of glory. It's not just Christ standing in front of you that's the hope of glory. It's Christ in you. It's Jesus living within you, working within you. His grace and righteousness and holiness and love transforming you. And it is Christ's glory that we will share. The same glory that shines out from within Him on the mount will shine out within us. God became man so that men might become like God, as we saw last week. In Christ, we are partakers of the divine nature. We do not cease to be human. We do not actually become divine. But we are nonetheless glorified in being conformed to His glory and righteousness. And what will that do for our ability to appreciate what it means to be in the presence of God? If we are able in this mortal, fallible frame to perceive the glory of God by spirit-given faith, how much more will we be able to perceive, understand, and enjoy the glory of God in the eternal state? And this is not just pointless or unprovable speculation. This is exactly what Scripture says. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. It's too bad that they won't be able to enjoy those things, right? <laughs> Paul's saying, there's something coming that you cannot even imagine. There's joy that you cannot know as limited and fallible as you are right now. But one day you'll know it. You'll taste it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, speaking, I think, of himself, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which is not lawful for man to utter. Paul says, if, if I were able to document what I heard, I wouldn't be allowed to. But I can't document it. Because it goes beyond articulation. It goes beyond the limits of our human language at this stage of creation. You're simply going to have to be there. You'll just have to be there to know what it is. There is more to be seen, more to be known, more to be experienced than we have yet imagined. And that is more than just knowledge. It is more than just sight. It is the experience of consummated communion with God. Many of us do tend to be rationalists and naturalists when it comes to our faith. But the Bible calls us to have faith in supernatural realities that transcend our sight or our present knowledge. Our future glory will not merely consist of being better educated so that we can write better books of theology and better catechisms. Glorification will involve a personal, present, permanent apprehension of the glory and greatness of God. And so let me leave you with an application before we finish. Live before God in such a way that you may one day see Him. The night of his betrayal, Jesus prayed to the Father and said this in John 17, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Two thousand years ago, Jesus was praying for you, and he still prays for you right now at the right hand of God. We sang that earlier today. He lives to make intercession for us. He is our high priest. He is our mediator. He's praying for you right now. You don't have to ask semi-glorified saints to, to, to pray for you because Jesus is praying for you. But 2,000 years ago, he was praying for you before he died. And what was he praying? He was praying, Father, the glory you gave me, I've given to everyone who one day is going to believe in me. All of you who are here right now, Father, bring them to be with me where I will be so that they can see my glory too. The Son of God has given us glory now so that one day we can be with him and see for ourselves the glory which he has in the presence of the Father. Think about that for just a minute. How might knowing that change the way that you relate to your spouse? 
and to your kids and to your brethren and to your work and to your suffering? What kind of difference might it make in your life if every day your perspective was shaped by Christ's gift of glory to you in view of the glory He desires one day to show you? Now, I realize that there are theologians who are constantly warning us of the danger of a theology of glory as opposed to a theology of the cross. And I want you to know that's not what I'm trying to do here and that's not what I'm talking about at all today. What I am trying to do is connect the glory of Christ and the cross. Both the cross He died upon and the cross that He calls you daily to bear. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before Him. And that's what he prayed for you and I to be able to do as well. He prayed that you would be able to carry the cross for the joy that was set before you. Because of the glory that he's given to you and the glory that one day he's going to show you. Endure. Persevere. Believe God. Love God. Serve God. Spend and be spent. Because of the joy that's set before you. In the Beatitudes, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And Thomas Watson, in his commentary and preaching on that passage, said this, Be not discouraged at sufferings. All the hurt affliction and death can do is to give you a sight of God. As he said to his fellow martyr, One half hour in glory will make us forget our pain. The sun arising, all the dark shadows of the night fly away. When the pleasant beams of God's countenance shall begin to shine upon the soul in heaven, then sorrows and sufferings shall be no more. The dark shadows of the night shall fly away. The thoughts of this beatifical vision shall carry a Christian full sail with joy through the waters of affliction. We should not grumble or complain or worry or fear or pity ourselves as we so often do. We see God by faith in the gospel And we are promised the greater vision of His glory and joy and peace when we stand before Christ on the last day. And what troubles can that vision not assuage? What burden of duty is not lightened by that hope? And that is not to downplay the reality of our suffering or the real difficulty of our obedience right now, but look beyond the cross and see the glory and joy that awaits God's faithful children. And run with perseverance, knowing that it lies ahead. Christ is what makes heaven heavenly. It would not be heaven at all if Christ were not there. And one day we will see Him face to face, just as surely as we see each other here today. We will see Him, and we will rejoice in Him and with Him forever. Earthly sin and sorrows will be swallowed up by everlasting joy and peace in the presence of Christ. So do not allow temptation or discouragements to keep you back from the glory that awaits. Instead, run by faith to the glorious one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's bow together. Gracious God, we do thank you for showing us your glory and for giving to us a taste and communion with that same glory through our union with the Savior, Jesus. Thank you for the promise of the glory that even our departed brothers and sisters behold in the presence of our Savior right now, and of the greater consummate glory that we all shall partake of together in your presence one day. We pray, O God, that you would bless us with faith, encourage us by your grace, and keep us through that faith. For that salvation we pray in Jesus our Savior's name. Amen.